Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Oksana Forostina is our Marching Cruel Fellow and she's joining us from Lviv where she sought refuge after leaving Kiev in the first days of the invasion. Oksana, uh, as you are uh, on the spot and you're reading the accounts and you're listening to the accounts of um, of the Ukrainians fighting against uh, the invasion invaders from Russia and now also being joined from Belarus. How how do you see uh, the determination of the Ukrainians vis-a-vis also the determination of Russians um, uh, in uh, in this war? Good evening, Wojciech. It's a kind of a roller coaster. On one hand, Kyiv is uh, under attack again as we speak. Uh, people stay in bomb shelters and uh, no one knows uh, how long. And uh, as uh, Russia, Russians stroke bravery like uh, an, an hour ago uh, or so, uh, or so, and six civilians uh, uh, are uh, injured. Uh, and um, Uh, now uh, now Kyiv is uh, under attack. Um, at the same time, um, as, uh, as you know, um, Macron spoke, uh, uh, spoke to Putin today and uh, Put, um, Putin's position uh, is the same. He insists on uh, so-called denazification, uh, which is uh, in fact uh, just his way to say he wants Ukrainian people dead. As his definition of uh, Ukrainian Nazis, basically everyone Uh, whose self-identification is um, Ukrainian. I, I'm just not sure that even now all people in the West understand that this vocabulary is just the pl- blueprint of the final solution of Endlosung. And um, that's what we see here in uh, in Ukraine. Um, And today also Russians uh, buried uh, Kharkiv uh, with rockets. Kharkiv is the second largest uh, uh, city uh, in uh, in Ukraine and nine people are dead and dozens are injured. And uh, also today, again today, uh, just just this morning, uh, just mo- uh, this morning, uh, Russians uh, also hit uh, oil deport with a vacuum bomb in in Akhtyrka near near Sume, and that's uh, the most devastating of non-nuclear bombs, and it's prohibited by uh, Geneva um, Convention. So I, I I just say it bluntly: what Putin has on his His agenda is uh, genocide. Uh, so we we know what we are dealing with. Uh, d- even despite his his promise to to Macron, as, as Macron said that uh, not not to attack um, not to attack civilians, we will see. Uh, but uh, Russian oligarchs uh, started to speak up in, in a tone uh, reflecting that they are beaten hard by sanctions. For example, uh, Oleg Deripaska, uh, Russian uh, oligarch, uh, very, very close to 
to Putin. He is under sanctions uh, himself since uh, since 2016. Uh, said today that uh, someone uh, what should pay for for this feast, and uh, he calls to end. Uh, quote state capitalism and that's mean that sanctions are actually working the the isolations of uh, isolation of russia is working and it should continue and uh, uh, we we cannot rely on uh, russian civil society it's helpless it, uh, it's barely uh, existing but we can expect that other players in Russian establishment uh, use uh, Putin's uh, uh, weakness, and uh, um, another another negotiations uh, uh, just uh, just ended uh, maybe maybe an hour ago or so. That was uh, the talks of uh, Russian and uh, Ukrainian. Um, delegations on the ukrainian belarus border and another important thing that uh, uh one of the people who helped to organize that was uh, uh, roman abramovich another very close to putin um, uh, oligarchs uh, um, we we don't know how close they are now but uh, if, uh, be, before that, before he left uh, uh, Russia for good, he he was very close, one of the closest, uh, actually. So um, uh, we we don't know uh, we don't actually know what uh, uh, what uh, will be uh, what will be the result of uh, of the talks. Now uh, it's on pause. Uh, so uh, both uh, both parts uh, uh, left uh, to to the capitals. Ukrainian delegation left for uh, for Kiev. What we know for sure that uh, there there is no room for a compromise from uh, Ukrainians uh, Ukrainian part. So Ukraine uh, Ukraine insists. Uh, on uh, um, uh, on withdrawal of all its troops of, of all Russian troops from Ukraine, including those from uh, Crimea and occupied territories of Donetsk and Lugansk uh, region. I mean, occupied since uh, 2014. Uh, from where we stand, the situation is irreversible. Uh, Ukrainians resist on all levels, both armed people and even unarmed. Uh, they all stand against uh, uh, Russian uh, Russian military. Uh, for example, today in Berdyansk, uh, that's uh, south uh, uh, of Ukraine, people um, just went out to protest uh, to protest um, uh, against Russian Russian troops, just unarmed. People, uh, so and as as we know, some soldiers just just left. Uh, it is obvious that no one in Russia was prepared for uh, for such resistance. Um, even here in Lviv, people prepare molotovs for other regions. Moreover, officials encourage them to do so. Ukrainian police educate how to make molotovs. So Russia is basically failing its blitzkrieg, and no one here is ready to compromise uh, people are very angry united and uh, they are eager to fight on all possible levels with all possible by by all possible means 
what Ukraine actually needs the most is no-fly zone, uh, as uh, attacks from the air uh, is um, the most dangerous and uh, the most devastating for uh, for civilians. And again, Russia attacks civilians, I, I say it bluntly, and uh, uh, Russia strikes hospitals and schools here. We have 16 children killed. I know that um, there are concerns that it's risky, but the, this risk is already here. Putin is trapped and he's very dangerous now, that's true. If he decides to hit a NATO country, for example, he would do it anyway, no matter, uh, no matter what NATO uh, decides uh, in the end of uh, on closing, uh, closing the sky. Uh, we are almost there, he, he's very close to his end and no-fly zone will just save lives. We are recording this podcast on 28th of February 2022, exactly um, when the Ukrainian delegation started the meeting with Russian and Belarusian counterparts in Belarus to seek options how to at least uh, reach a ceasefire agreement, if not end the hostilities that started on 24th of February with a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're going to review for you the Central European response to the crisis started by Russia and Ukraine and talk about some of the most important texts. But also we want us uh, collectively, uh, us sitting here, but with all the team and fellows, express words of solidarity with uh, Ukrainians. Uh, my name is Wojciech Przybylski. I'm here with uh, Miles Maftian and Kamil Jarończyk. And we're going to run uh, the weekly outlook uh, for you just in a moment. Kamil, what, uh, what is the response from Central Eastern European countries uh, that we cover in our weekly review to, uh, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yes, we this week for the weekly outlook we over we have an overview of the military, humanitarian, and diplomatic uh, response, as well as looking at disinformation narratives in the CEE. The um, the def the defense response uh, we broke down into uh, help for Ukraine, um, harm to Ukraine, and um, refraining from support. Uh, so could you elaborate on those? Especially, I mean, we see that many Central European countries have been committing early on to munition support, to non-lethal uh, armament, transportation, logistical support of it as well. Uh, also, we have seen that the, some of the planes, um, uh, MiG planes, were basically rebranded and uh, flew from Poland and other Central European countries to Ukrainian uh, by Ukrainian, uh, flown by Ukrainian pilots and they, they went to war in Ukraine but uh, what's where's the hurt and where's the neutral yes. in Central Eastern Europe? Um, yes, so uh, we really br uh, bring down how much uh, it's being helped. But uh, what's uh, uh, within the weekly outlook, we over also cover Belarus. And Belarus, as we covered last week, had a referendum, quote-unquote, uh, where, uh, quote-unquote, 65% of the population voted for the um, 
changes to the constitution, which basically changes Belarus's constitution to allow for nuclear weapons, which is also which is in the news, but also creates a new uh, position for uh, Luka, uh, Luka, Lukashenko, basically for himself to get around uh, term limits uh, as well. Uh, he uh, basically keeping him in power, but also. Uh, um, uh, but also, it uh, get rid of it gets rid of Belarus's neutral status, which uh, which is likely to become uh, belligerent uh, within Ukraine with Belarusian soldiers on the ground. That is, of course, the referendum. That is more of a political uh, consideration and the context of what is happening. But as uh, the invitation came to Ukrainians, there was a ballistic missile Iskander, Iskander. shot uh, from the territory of Belarus. Apparently, Belarusian allowed for that, but did not fire themselves. The, the Iskander missile, um, capable of large-scale destruction, la- landed. I mean, the, the, it hit a target near Zhytomyr Airport, yep. so pretty central um, uh, Ukraine. And at the same time, we have reports, also video coverage, of Belarusian columns of troops mounting up at the at the at the border mm-hmm. why is that what's uh, what's uh, what's in it for Lukashenko yes so uh, well he doesn't have any other option really uh, he is um, uh, he has basically uh, because of the protests uh, in uh, 2020 uh, there were uh, against uh, the rigged election uh, the balancing act that Lukashenko played is not possible anymore because there's nobody to balance against. And uh, as his regime became less and less popular, he had to be brought, uh, backed up more and more by his uh, neighbor to the east, um, uh, turning to a clear, um, to very clear, uh, obvious authoritarianism, uh, authoritarian tactics. And uh, of course, now when it's uh, time to collect during the war of Ukraine, uh, the the war with Ukraine, Russia's war with the Ukraine. Uh, Belarus has nothing really to say. Lukashenko has nothing really to say. Similarly, we see also Hungary, which is uh, having, okay, it is aligning with EU position. So it does not um, protest when EU is transforming uh, as we as we speak um, to a more strategic autonomous uh, power by uh, taking action that has been muddled for a long time and now it's being uh, fast-tracked in response to the um, invasion of Russia on Ukraine. But still, um, Hungary uh, legally committing um, to the obligations and also providing support, which we cover in the weekly outlook to the refugees. We refugees are welcome in Hungary. Mm -hmm. It is continuously uh, vocally supportive of Russia. The main channels um, controlled by the government or those that are sponsored by the government politically, they repeat Russian message to the Ukraine, to the Hungarian population that this is a military operation, not a Russian invasion, that uh, also Ukrainians are a threat to Hungarians, which is absurd. And this is why also Hungary says it will not commit itself by supplying uh, Ukrainians with arms. Ha- Hungarian prime minister said that uh, essentially this could lead to um, undermining security of Transcarpathian Hungarian minority living in Ukraine, since Ukrainians may use these arms to attack. I mean, this is absurd. This is a piece of uh, malign, uh, uh, cunning uh, disinformation narrative that may he hopes to serve him in the in the upcoming elections, but we also see and we also cover in the outlook unprecedented uh, level of support of Hungarians coming to the streets and demanding 
um, that that there is uh, solidarity with with uh, Ukraine fighting for uh, for their freedom yeah. from and and from a country that really was in 1956 invaded uh, with no help um, from abroad. I mean, all of, of all nations, you, the Hungarians should should really understand um, what is at stake here. Yeah, um, uh, br- talking about uh, disinformation as well and the Hungarian, something, there was a tweet by Peter Mar- uh, Peter Markizai. The candidate of the United Opposition. Of the United Opposition, basically saying that the, hung- that the Hungarian state has sent out emails to addresses registered on the, the official coronavirus website, claiming the opposition wants Hungary to send troops to Ukraine. There was another piece of disinfo that we also highlighted in the weekly outlook, spreading the disinformation that is also meant, as as we pointed out, to help um, uh, in the elections to you know to come to rescue to the Orban who's sinking, whose political and geopolitical position has been now uh, so much redundant, uh, and he's he's clearly on the losing side. Unfortunately, speaking of long history of Hungary, not for the first time, uh, a nationalist leader is uh, pushing Hungary to such a, uh, such a bad position with a bad choices um, he would made. Um, okay, so that's maybe enough from the teasers of the weekly outlook. Yeah, and we should maybe also mention that today we, we start um, four days long state of conf- the conference, State of Hungary, that our subscribers are invited to. I mean, our uh, our website subscribers uh, are invited to, along with select guests from diplomatic think tank and journalistic community. So you can still join us, check on our website, State of Hungary. But uh, let us focus maybe now on also the big context, that these lots of moving pieces, and we've been also covering some of them in the past week, and there are also some upcoming uh, text uh, worth noteworthy uh, for you as our listeners that will maybe flash out also in the description to this podcast that that are uh, that are important to discuss. Miles, uh, what's your take? What what do you think is the big game changer for Central Eastern Europe as maybe for the whole of Europe? Well, I think one of the main central massive changes that that actually occurred and which was really shocking. Uh, was the reversal of Germany's position in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We understand someone like Orban would would use this crisis now for a sort of political gain um, and refrain from support for this reason, but many uh, were lamenting at the idea that Germany would not be supporting Ukraine in any way other than sending, as we know, the 4,000 helmets. Just a few days ago, they seemed to be one of the actors that was against sanctions, against swift sanctions, um, and certainly were, were refraining other uh, Central and Eastern European states from sending German-made weapons to the region as well. Yesterday, uh, we saw essentially a reversal of decades of Germany's post-Cold War foreign policy. So Chancellor Olaf Scholz, he announced a major boost to German military spending in the latest of a series of dramatic moves. So when he, what he did is he spoke at an emergency session uh, of the German parliament and to kind of discuss Russia's war against Ukraine. And 
he announced a few things. So he wants to set up a special 100 billion euro fund to actually upgrade German armed forces. Um, and very important to actually adhere to the NATO goal of spending 2% of GDP on defense. You know, and this this really came a day after Germany decided to deliver arms to Ukraine. So that was another historic move. Uh, now they, they've agreed for swift sanctions. They've halted, obviously, the, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. So a lot of a lot of analysts in the region, a lot of uh, political scientists, a, a lot of academics, what, what I saw very often is all of those who were actually watching this speech were saying that this is decades of German foreign policy change in a few minutes before your very eyes. And, and to kind of discuss this and the speed by which this came, uh, just last week, Pavel Havlicek, who is a Marching Pro fellow, um, he was writing about, um, you know, how there was limited support from, from Ukraine uh, from the German side that was symbolized by, by the thousands of helmets, um, as I mentioned. But right now we kind of see that all eyes are on Ukraine at the moment. But of course, there is something that sort of lurks in the background as a question for me, and that's monitoring what is actually going to happen to the larger EU defense system uh, more generally. So it's a question of what is going to happen. Could this sort of lead to a change not only in defense structures of the EU, um, but in strengthening democratic security as well, right? Um and of course, you have questions of what does this mean for NATO and so forth. But more specifically, I, I think the way that EU governance actually was um, will will be further substantiated from from what we've actually seen. Right. There is a lot coming up and the changes we will definitely cover um, in the upcoming uh, pieces of uh, analysis and foresight. So stay tuned. This week, we are going to have also one other opinion by Martin L, who writes um, about the, the, the end of cold, uh, post-Cold War system uh, with uh, lots of instability also to be expected. There is a whole big question about energy that the moves that Germany have initiated uh, will, will also bear consequences for centralists in Europe. That's also why I believe that uh, Viktor Orban's uh, bet on uh, Russia supplying majority of uh, its uh, energy supplies, uh, you know, atomic power and gas is the, is the wrong bet. It's a bad bet against what is currently happening. We see in Germany a uh, reverse or, or at least a postponement of the decision to, uh, to stop nuclear uh, power plants. They were uh, supposed to do that. And at the same time, from the speech by Scholz, which was very remarkable, I do recommend you can, you can also uh, listen to it with a translation into English, I think provided by Deutsche Welle mm -hmm. um, online. He also pledges uh, fast-tracking um, innovation in energy, meaning to boost um, alternative sources of energy and at least efficiency increase in the um, in the existing ones. So, 
from that point, single point of view alone, there is so much happening. But also the commitment, um, defense commitment to protect uh, and to reinforce existing NATO uh, members in Eastern Europe, Central Eastern Europe, that is going to be a major shift. Plus, I think the last point I would make, also not referring directly even to, to Martin, what we are clearly observing is uh, more uh, more determination by the EU to influence its neighborhood. As we have seen, uh, Serbia has been reluctant to impose any sanctions or condemn Russia. It was moving along the narrative that Hungary also adopted from Russia rather than the EU narrative. And uh, there was a clear message from the EU these days, I think today, in fact, that anyone who is thinking about EU membership needs to comply with uh, the and needs to adopt with a sanctioned regime uh, that EU has just proposed. The future opening of accession of, of Ukraine uh, for Ukraine, but also for other member states, is now going to be largely reviewed. Uh, the Paris uh, kind of obstruction of the Western Balkan process, for instance, might not happen anymore, um, and maybe even quicker than by June, when there is a summit expected on Western Balkans in the in the French presidency. So um, a lot of things on the table, a lot of moving pieces, and we'll do our best, <laughs> pledging here to our listeners, to analyze as best as we can, also in writing. Uh, so do come and subscribe, and follow Visegrad Insight in our productions. By now, thank you very much and uh, Slava Ukraine! Geroim Slava! Geroim Slava! We're now turning to Tatiana Poliak-Grovic, Director of the Europe's Neighborhood Program at Visegrad Insight, with a question of what is the reception of Russian invasion on Ukraine in the Balkans, in the Western Balkans? Um, we have uh, seen um, some pretty, uh, uh, you know, different positions. I mean, from Kosovo applying for NATO membership to Serbia ignoring. How serious is the war on Ukraine from the perspective seen through the lenses of Western Balkans leaders? Wojtek, thank you very much for your question. Well, everybody in Western Balkans is completely aware of the seriousness of the situation in Ukraine. All very well remember the Balkan War from the 90s. But you're right, not all reacted in the same way. And I think that the war in Ukraine exposed or rather confirmed true affinities of each and every country in terms of the foreign policy. Uh, following Russia's aggression in Ukraine, most Western Balkan countries have aligned themselves with the European Union, condemned Russia and imposed sanctions against it, but who refused to do it was Serbia. It still remains Russia's strong, strongest ally in the region. Uh, while it has stated that it supports Ukraine's territorial integrity and that Russian uh, actions were the violation of the international law, we haven't hear, haven't heard yet uh, any condemnation from the uh, leadership of, of Serbia. Russian influence in the region remains strong, we have to remember about that, and there are concerns that it will use and Russia will use Serbia to destabilize the, destabilize the Western Balkans. As to Bosnia, 
the situation here is a little bit more complicated, as we all know about the the institutional structure of this country, and um, it, the country has been unable to reach any common position on the war due to the opposition of the Republika Srpska leadership, um, namely Milorad Dodik, who we know that has been a strong supporter of Russia uh, recently and for quite a long time. And we also remember his uh, most recent activities to destabilize situation uh, in, in Bosnia. As to Montenegro, they haven't uh, adopted the, the sections, sanctions yet. Nevertheless, they did confirm, uh, did promise to do that. Um, due to uh, due to the foreign minister, they just need a little bit more time to uh, to harmonize their um, their legal framework with that. Um, North Macedonia and Albania, uh, we all remember they're members of, of NATO and they um, expectedly went along the lines of their foreign policy. Um, no surprises here, I would say. <laughs>